You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. As noted in the previous episode, auditions are the backbone of this industry. It is the fundamental job of every actor to do as many auditions as we can and to do each one of them to the best of our ability. But there is an important gatekeeper when it comes to submitting our self-tapes or actually getting in the audition room, and that is the casting director. You've heard from actors and their experiences in front of the audition table. Well, now it's time to hear from the other side of the table and what goes into casting and the vital role they play in both stage and screen productions. Hi, I'm Daryl Eisenberg. I am the co-owner and managing partner of Eisenberg Beans Casting. We're a full-service casting office working in theater, film, episodic, commercial, new media, audio, you name it, we're working on it. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, raised in New Jersey, lived in New York, and then moved right back to New Jersey to raise my family. And I'm thrilled to be here tonight. Along with Allie Beans, Daryl Eisenberg works to create a comfortable space for us actors so that we can take risks and really show our full potential as artists, which isn't always easy for us to do in the audition room. Now, at the end of this episode, Daryl will be answering some of your questions. But first, you'll hear Daryl's thoughts on making our mark in the audition room or on a self-tape. And then you'll get an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at how she uses her position and expertise to make the audition process enjoyable and inclusive for artists on both sides of the table. I no longer feel that casting really sits in a service position because we are so involved creatively and we are so involved so early on in the process um, that I've started joking and sometimes not joking, saying that we're really casting producers, not casting directors. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning Top 25 Theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It's always a thrill as an actor to talk to a casting director like yourself, so I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. It was a funny story how we connected, and I'm happy that it all worked out. <laughs> right? I mean, social media is kind of the way a lot of people are connecting these days, and you and I kind of started an exchange, and uh, I was so glad that you accepted my invitation to come on. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for hosting. Now, I've been in front of you a couple of times, and uh, it's always interesting when I get a casting director in this kind of format where I can ask them one of my biggest questions, which is, what is it that we actors do in the room or don't do in the room that really stands out to you, that really makes your job either hard or easy in casting us? Sure. I mean, ultimately, I want actors to come into the room prepared and with a point of view. And if an actor does that, that's a win in my book. Um, a good day for me is walking out having lots of options, lots of folks who technically could do the job. And then for us, it's a matter of who we want to do the job. Um, it's always hard when you get to the end of the casting process and there's really only one or zero options who even technically could fit the requirements, hit the note, play the role, you know, be available. Uh, so I don't want to just have someone who is technically 
able to do it. I want someone who the team is excited to have do it and whose point of view was novel and thrilling and interesting and, and appropriate. Uh, and then is a kind person that the team is excited to collaborate with. Um, so that to me is always a, a good day is at the, when at the end, it's a matter of, do we want this version of the production or that version of the production? And then we're really just talking about the sort of the creative nuances between actors and the different stories they tell. And then which is the story we are telling right now? That's the meatiest wrap-up casting conversation rather than, well, they couldn't hit the note. They couldn't hit the note. They don't have the dance skills. They, don't, they can't play the guitar. Okay, well, I guess this is, this is the option we have. I hope they accept. You don't want that, right? So if, as long as actors come in prepared, kind, on time, um, and bringing themselves, what is the version of the role that only you can play? I want, I want every single actor in, in the room to be able to, in theory, book the part. And then we get to sort of have our, have our choice out of them. So we're always, I know this is a cliche, we're always rooting for actors, right? Like the better an actor does in the room, the better we did our jobs. And so uh, I hope actors are taking to heart that saying that we're actors, cheerleaders, because we, we truly are, both for selfish reasons, because it, it, it makes us look good. Uh, and also because we want, we want to be able to have a, a deeper creative casting conversation and actors need to be able to get us to that point to have that conversation. So then as far as that idea of looking good to your clients, the ones that hire you, does it reflect negatively on you when a bunch of actors come in and they're not prepared or, or then you only have those one or two options rather than 20? Yeah. I mean, we didn't do our job if we're not letting the director have their pick of options as opposed to, well, this was the default option. So I'll talk a little bit about preparation. We get all too often in the room, oh, I, I didn't get that side. And we bang our heads against the table because like, well, yes, you did. Because with a single PDF, everybody before and everyone after you all got that side. Don't make it look like we didn't do our jobs of getting you all of the material. It's right there. It was pages four and five in the PDF. You had pages one, two, three and six, seven, eight. Like, so it, it, we bristle when actors try to throw us under the bus of like, oh, we didn't prepare them with the things they need when everybody else did. Everyone else had the exact same mass email or mass C-mail or math, whatever that we put out all of our appointments with. If everyone else got that side, don't don't say it was because we didn't give it to you. Um, and, you know, there's always that, that knee-jerk reaction. If an actor's like, well, I didn't get that. Well, the director turns to us and says, well, why didn't they get that? Right, right. We did. It don't, don't look at us. Um, and that's, that's just like a, a pain point sometimes where we are meticulous in what we do. Um, we, it's literally our jobs to make sure that auditions and callbacks go as smoothly and as efficiently as possible. We we make sure that there is no question mark left in what's expected from an actor when they read the material, show up, where are they going, what elevator, what ID do you need, what COVID preparations. Like We are over the top prepared. Even so much so with self-tapes, we send uh, a how-to-self-tape instruction PDF with everything we send to make sure that there are no questions about what we need. Um, so I don't, I don't like being thrown under the bus when we know we did our jobs. <laughs> All right, Daryl. Well, I wanted to get to the first story that you wanted to talk about, the way that casting has evolved from your first casting internship until today. What would you say has, has been the major shifts or transitions that it's gone through? Sure. So my first casting internship, I sat at the front desk. I had a landline in front of me, no computer. Uh, if we needed to make copies, we went next door to an agent's office and used our copy machine. Uh, the fax machine was, you know, the main point, and there were messengers running from agents' offices to our casting office with manila envelopes filled with cover sheets and headshots. 
Uh, and, you know, he was, that, that was my day. I did a lot of filing in cabinets and putting papers into binders and alphabetizing things. It was, you know, lyrical and very paper oriented. And now if I had an intern and we, we don't have interns anymore in our office, not a different conversation for a different day as to why not. But if I had someone working in my office and they didn't have a computer in front of them, well, they might as well go home. I don't know what they could do all day long. Um, <laughs> right. So I think we've seen in the world of technology from the casting side of things, I mean, it's night and day. Literally, it's been a revolution of technology and casting. Um, we use, you know, a digital casting service websites such as Breakdown Express and Actors Access. Um, nearly all of my communication with agents and managers is done by email. When I used to have to put out appointments for auditions, I would have a like grid on a piece of paper in front of me and a pencil. And I would write every actor in with times and I would call every agent and I had every agency phone number memorized and I would use a landline and we would say, and it would like, you would give this memorized feel of like, it's this day, this time, this studio, this room number, this is what they're going to need to prepare. This is, you know, we're going to have to send that material over via messenger. Um, it was this whole, you know, laborious process. It would take maybe two or three days to put up the appointments we would get phone calls asking me to change times and we'd have to erase it and write it back in a pencil. I mean, it was just literal stone ages. And this is, you know, post turn of the century that this was happening. Um, and so it was very tedious and sometimes just mishearing a studio number or an address on the phone from the agent, not the actor showed up at the wrong place. Um, so, you know, you had to be speak very slowly, very clearly repeat it. It was just very, very tedious just to simply put out audition appointments. Now we organize it all on a scheduling tool. We press send, off it all goes. And all the information is typed so it's clear. There's no question what room number one because it's typed right in front of you. And I can also give way more detail and way more information because I'm not dictating it over the phone for an agent's assistant to write down for them to then translate that over to their client. Like there was no game of telephone here. So what used to take days of putting out appointments. I can do in maybe 15, 20 minutes by the time I like set the schedule up how I want it and press send. So you can think about how much time we gain back to then spend in other endeavors or other projects. Um, and that's just like technology of it all. Don't even get me started on self-tape because that wasn't really quite something that happened at all when I started working in casting. And now I'd say it's about 95% of what I'm handling since March 2020. And then we've also seen just the creative side of casting change tremendously. Um, I was always taught as I was growing up in the, the casting world, working with mentors and um, all of my previous bosses, you know, casting is a service industry. We're here in service of the director, the producer, the writer, their vision. And although I still very much feel it is my responsibility to service their vision of it, I no longer feel that casting really sits in a service position because we are so involved creatively and we are so involved so early on in the process um, that I've started joking and sometimes not joking, saying that we're really casting producers, not casting directors. But so much of what we do is a producerial conversation. Um, and it's really sort of shifting how a piece lives in sort of the canon of its art form, be it theater or film or episodic or whatever we're working within. And I've seen that change, that willingness to participate in the creative development of something really take off. In fact, one of my casting colleagues was just announced, I think yesterday, the day before, that she is actually lead producing a new Broadway production. 
and she's a casting director. And, and I wonder how much of that production is simply because the casting of it was the producing of it. Um, in reality television, casting directors are actually called casting producers because without them, there, there's nothing there. Um, they are literally producing what we watch on TV through reality television because it's all around the casting. And that's changed a lot, um, both by casting's willingness to dive in and by helping keep casting relevant in the, the current social uh, climate of making sure that what we're doing is right and sound and appropriate and relevant. Uh, and I don't think those conversations were happening at the highest level and the earliest level when I first started in casting. And this they worry it was tentative. It was, I shouldn't be having this conversation. We're going to and now it's, oh, it's my mandate to have these conversations. It's the requirement of my field to push and to ask and to elevate. I've also found that I've been asked maybe 10 times in the past six months to recommend a director for a project that I'm already slated to cast. That's just a little backwards to how it used to be. The director used to be the one saying, hey, this is the casting director I want to work with. And here I am saying, well, here's a director I think would be a good fit. That's, that's produsorial. Um, generally outside of what the scope of casting is, but yet time and time again, I'm offering up suggestions for directors or music directors or choreographers. Um, so I think producerially casting has started to come into the process earlier and earlier and earlier. And as a result, our voices are heard more clearly and more often. Would you say that your rates now have become commensurate with your added responsibilities? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because in some ways, I feel like, and you can certainly give your opinion, in some ways, I feel like we've taken on some of the casting director's jobs of hiring the reader, finding, you know, getting the tape together, lighting, you know, making sure all those technical elements are in place, then really kind of coaching ourselves through the audition since we don't have someone there giving different takes, reads, presenting the best. We're kind of then kind of whittling it down between the 10 takes or so we did of something to give you the best. So in essence, our jobs as actors has also gone up as well. And certainly in the commercial world, which I do mostly and then in TV film, then those rates haven't really gone up with the added responsibility of those self-tapes. So would you say that we are now making your job easier or has your job gotten harder because of self-tape? On your end, what have self-tapes meant to you? Um, I don't want to say things have gotten easier or harder. I just think the uh, the scope has shifted a little bit. I wholeheartedly agree that a lot of responsibility has been placed on actors' shoulders now during the audition process. Um, and our office, at least, tries very hard to minimize the burden, both financial and otherwise, to actors for their self-tape process. Again, we put out this um, sort of self-tape instruction PDF that really says as much of like, if it should be one and done. We, I don't care about sound editing. If an AC turns on or dog barks or your kid walks into the frame, we don't care because if we were doing this audition at Ripley Greer, don't worry, there'd be tap dancing above our heads and a siren in the street and we would keep going. Um, and so at least we try to, in the ways that we can, try to make the audition process for the actor as close to what it would have been had they just walked into a room, did their work and left. Um, that's what I'm looking for in a self-tape. Um, I do think there is a lot of good that has come out of the shift in casting during the pandemic. Um, I try to focus on the positives of where we are with self-tapes. In the past, when I was having pre-screens, you know, auditions just with me to figure out who we're going to bring to callbacks with our creative team, I had a finite number of spots to give out to actors based on 
how much time I had in the room, what a turnaround time was, et cetera. So let's say in a preschool day, I had 50 time slots. Okay, I'm only going to have 50 actors in the mix for this project from the moment go, which means they're actors number 51, 52, 53. They're not even going to be in the mix. They don't have the opportunity to be seen for this project. It also means that I don't want to leave my preschool with nobody to bring into callbacks, right? The same way that at the end of my my casting process, I want to have fruitful, real creative conversations. I don't want to leave my my preaching process saying, well, only four people actually like could do this. And I don't even know if I like that version of it, but that's all I have. They're going to call back. No, I want to be able to have my pick of folks I feel like are are authentic and interesting and kind. I want, I want to have options. And so I'm going to be a little bit less risky in who I bring into a pre-screen because I need to know at the end of that, I've got something to move on to callbacks with which means I'm not going to see 50 people I've never heard of before. No, I'm going to see people that I can rely on. Now, maybe of my 50 folks, there'll be 10 people I I don't know them. They're inter- they're the, the resume looks interesting, or the Android look, or an agent recommends them. Okay, yeah, sure. And maybe another 20 or 30 that I feel like they can nail this. I know that. Maybe another 10 that I'm like, well, this is a little outside the box, so let's see what it's like. Okay, when it's self-taped, it's no longer do I want to see this actor or that actor. I can see all of them. So. Although we are now shifting responsibility onto the actors to produce those self-tapes, I'm now no longer adjudicating 50 people for a pre-screen. I'm adjudicating 250 people for a pre-screen. So my process has shifted and the the quantity of tapes that I have to view, the quantity of actors I have to adjudicate has grown tenfold sometimes. And so that's the balance of the responsibility we put onto the actor, but it's also now the larger scope of work we've taken on for ourselves because we're not sitting in a room and because we're not limited by time, I want to be able to make sure I've done my due diligence. I'm going to, I'm going to see a lot more actors or parts now, which I actually think is beautiful. It means I can be riskier in my pre-screens because I'm not thinking about that safety net of like, well, I better walk out of here with a few people for callbacks. I can see five times, 10 times as many people. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get good people for callbacks. I'm no longer worried about that. Um, and I can try new interesting things. I can think outside the box more, which I think gives us much more interesting casts, much more diverse casts, much more unique. It's because I'm not just saying like, well, this is the safe choice I can have because I know I'm going to get something. I can really experiment. And sometimes we get huge wins with those experiments. And with that increase in self-tapes, I serve on a few committees with the Actors' Equity Association. And in in one of those meetings, I remember there was a big discussion about actors knowing that their tapes weren't being seen. And I'm certainly not accusing your casting office, but I know that this has just been a broader issue with actors that have spoken. How does your office address that to make sure that every tape that comes in is viewed at least once? We view every tape at least once. <laughs> we respond to every single email that gets sent to us, especially during EPA processes, which are right now entirely virtual for us. Um, if you send in a tape for an EPA, you got an emailed response back, usually with your name inside that email saying thank you. Um, we take it upon ourselves to watch every tape. If it's a tape for a pre-screen or a pop-up process, we are watching it not only once, two, three, four, or five times. I got into a little back and forth, maybe in a TikTok comment thread, where someone was talking about that, about how they have no views. And I tried to explain, like, no, sometimes it's because we ripped your video from Vimeo or YouTube or Google Drive or wherever you, you're hosting it. We downloaded it and we uploaded it into the platform that we use. Our office uses Ecocast, which is part of the Breakdown Services, Breakdown Express ecosystem. So, yeah, your YouTube view may have, like, no full views on it. Why? Because I downloaded it and uploaded it elsewhere, and that's where I'm watching it 15 times. 
And I kept trying to explain that. And they're like, well, no, that's not right. It's like, well, that, that is what's happening um, because I, I can't collect just PDFs of links and links and links and links and sending it to creative team and then the Google Drive. Privacy permissions weren't right because that email, no, I'm going to do my job and, <laughs> and make it efficient for my teams and download it and, and host it all under one communal roof. Um, and so sometimes that's why the view counts look weird. It's simply because I'm not viewing it on the link you sent me. I ripped it and I uploaded it elsewhere. It's also why I hate YouTube because there is no native download feature on YouTube. So I have to use like a very sketchy third-party yeah. third site with pop-up ads and it download. No, I, I hate it. Um, so there you go. This is a little PSA to everyone. Please don't send me a YouTube. Please give me like Vimeo, Google Drive, Dropbox. Even I'll take a WeTransfer. I prefer streaming, but I, I'll take what I can get. Anything but YouTube. Um, but no, our office makes sure we watch we watch everything. And if we can, we respond and say thank you. So that way everyone knows it was received. And we're very good about databasing and labeling and sort of keeping track of everyone. It's something we pride our like like type A mindset on of uh, keeping organized and having um, really good mechanisms to recall actors down the line. Yeah, because I was looking at your partner's feed, Allie Beans. I was looking at her Twitter feed, and she happened to mention something about how she was going through a casting process, and she just called in someone from a year and a half ago, but they got called in for this particular thing because of what they did a year and a half ago. So that that speaks to at least your office remembering us actors and what we do in that room or on the self-tape. That's literally our job, is to think about every actor we've ever encountered in any way and when it comes time for a project, do we know or like that actor and can they do it? Great. And there are folks who I've seen do their work, I mean, 20 years ago, but no, nope, they will still stick with me. I actually was on a phone call a few days ago and was trying to advocate for an actress who I met because she was a reader in the casting office of my very first casting internship. Like that's how I encountered this actress. And to this day, she still goes on my list. I still advocate for her. She's one of the most brilliant actresses I've ever seen. And that's her job. It's it's our job to recall those actors and to figure out where where they're going to be best suited for all the projects we encounter now and to infinity and beyond. Um, but yeah, if you're reading Ali's Twitter feed, you, you've got some good content there. She is masterful in the written word. She's, she's great. Absolutely. And one of the things when it comes to those self-tapes, I think why us actors, we get a little like, are they watching it? Did they see it? Are, are, are they really? Is because, you know, what used to be an in-person face-to-face, we could we could hear a how you say thank you. We I mean we read into everything in that room. You know which pile we went into when we were done. It's like well, oh is that the good pile? Is that the bad? Pile? You know all these things that go into that in-person audition. Now we're in our bedrooms recording ourselves, not knowing how it's reaching you, if it's reaching you. So there's not that back and forth that we used to have, and I think that's a part of why we're so nervous or scared that no one's watching our tapes. We're just throwing it out there and it's not being seen. Right. I would flip that on its head and think of that as a gift that you no longer have to the have the anxiety of like reading into how I say thank you, reading into like which pile you went into, how many notes, like I, let that be the gift of you don't have to stress about that. You don't have to think about that. You can be, you can tape it, press send. It is off your plate. It is no longer a burden on your soul. Move on. And then if it ever comes back, great, it comes back. But let's like lean into the blessing of what that means to no longer have the neuroses of like, do they like me? How do they say thank you? How many times did they eat their sandwich while I was talking? Like, you don't have to deal with that anymore. Like, let that be the gift of this. 
And certainly one thing is that now when we're called back into the room, we know you watched it, we know you liked it, so we already have that affirmation going into the in-person callback. Whenever you bring someone in, are you looking to see that they recreate what was on the self-tape or that they bring something new? What is the purpose of bringing them in as opposed to watching that self-tape? Our office actually has been very limited in our in-person sessions, either auditions or callbacks for the past two, two plus years. Most of our contracts that we sign as casting directors will explicitly state our casting process is through virtual or offer-only processes. Like there are a lot of the contracts that we sign are explicit that we will not be in the room for this. Now, granted, a lot of them are film, a lot of them. But there are also a lot of theater projects where we don't we don't go into the room for it at all. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why. I think the pandemic is first and foremost um, that however safe we think we are, it is not safe. And also there is an inherent risk. If I don't have to do that, I won't do that. Now, there are some processes I absolutely want to be in the room for. Dance is one of them. I think uh, the burden of self-tape with dance, even at the initial stage, that burden is too high for a dancer. Um, I saw an interesting, again, TikTok. You can tell what social media platform I'm addicted to right now. Um, but they basically were like, hey, equity, haven't we figured out how to have like five basic combinations and different styles with a moment to show all your tricks and every actor puts them on tape and there's a database of five different styles of dance and we never ever have to do this again guys like you can just watch the you know the common application of dancing and move on from there that the notion that for a pre-screen we are teaching an individual choreographers uh moves over like it's that burden i think has gotten out of control Uh, in the same way for a pre-screen for a musical i don't need someone to learn the music from our show i need someone to sing the song that they already have in their book that is similar to our show. And I hope dance can get there. Like, I, I hope we start to realize there's a way to have a book of dance, the same way that we have a book of musical theater, or you have prepared monologues in certain styles, contemporary and Shakespeare and comedy and track. Like, I hope that we get to a, a place where there can be sort of a, a repository of videos for dancers and we're done. And we only ask dancers to learn combinations when it's at the callback stage of things. Our traditional process right now is we have a pre-screen self-tape we send our selects to a creative team. The creative team comes back and says, these are the you know top three, four, five folks that we're really interested in. And here's some feedback for a redirection as needed for each individual actor. Sometimes it's, hey, all actors with the side, can you do this crying because it's a really dramatic scene? Or can you do this all X, Y, Z? Or sometimes it's this actor, hey, I like how you did this, lean into that. And then for this actor, the opposite. You went really heavy in that direction. Why don't we try? Like, sometimes it's as nuanced as there is a paragraph of feedback for a specific actor. We send them that feedback, they tape it again, and they shoot it back to us. I actually quite prefer that. I've been in Zoom callbacks often enough with directors at the top of their game who aren't using the Zoom callback process to do anything that they need to be done in real time. Generally, what happens in a Zoom callback is an actor comes in and we say, okay, great, can you, can you do the size just to like get us be familiar with your work? The actor does exactly what they already did in the self-tape. I could have literally just screenshot and press play while the actor just sat there and watched themselves. Um... And then the director will be like, great, cool. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Here's my feedback for you. And on the spot, the actors to go, the, director, the actors go, oh, okay, cool. And then do it again. All while having this audio lag with a reader. And sometimes there's Zoom connection. Sometimes the director gets kicked down. We have to pause while we get them back into the room. <laughs> right. And the, the actor does their redirection. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll talk a little, which is probably the most useful part of the Zoom callback. And then we all say goodbye. And then we get the next person in from the Zoom waiting room because we're already behind schedule because of tech hiccups. Why? Why did it have to be that way? Um, so we've actually found, mostly in our film projects with our, our lead roles, 
We don't do a callback. We set up a phone call with the director and the actor. They're not reading sides. They're just talking. Do you jive well? Is this someone that you want to work with on set? What is their, you know, creative take on the role? And that's usually a one-on-one conversation I'm not even on between a director and an actor. Those I find fruitful. Um, I honestly haven't really been in too many Zoom callbacks where I felt like that process had to be done in real time and with all the burden that comes with in real time auditions. So for a lot of those reasons, we actually haven't found ourselves in a callback room for much of anything in two years. Uh, we've, we've done everything we can on tape. And when we no longer can get it, then we've moved into the room. Now, sometimes entire processes have been in person. Um, we've gone out of town for auditions and everything from open calls to callback live and in person. We work on a, worked on a film uh, that had a lot of children roles. All of that was pre-screen. And then the callbacks were in person because they're kids and we want to get a sense of what they, they are like without the gift of editing and prompting that we wouldn't know about behind the scenes. So with kids, I, there's sort of a uh, desire sometimes to be in the room. But again, I've, I think I've been in the room for less than 10 days in the past two plus years. COVID certainly has changed the way we now audition, with self-tapes and Zoom auditions becoming the standard. But the summer of 2020 also changed the way we think about who is in the audition room or on that self-tape and what that creative team looks like. In this week's bonus episode, Daryl shares a few of her own experiences as she advocates for more diversity on both sides of the table. You'll also hear how she works with fellow casting director Allie Beans, who is both partner and collaborator in the casting process. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So if you'd like to help this podcast as well and get access to these bonus episodes like audition stories, then consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. For story number two, you wanted to talk about how our industry and society as a whole still needs to change regarding caregivers. Why has this become so important to you? Um, I don't think I really had much notion that this was even something worth talking about until I had kids of my own. And unfortunately, I find that all too common that uh, caregiving, parenting is not really thought of until someone personally encounters it. By and large, casting directors are freelance. So I'm not given the gift of, you know, federally mandated maternity leave or any sort of job protection. Um, And I'd say just about everyone in our industry works in that freelance capacity, directors, writers, actors. um, We don't have a steady paycheck and protections and, you know, guaranteed days off. If I take a day off, it's because I'm not working on something that I'm not getting paid off. So as a whole, I, I don't think that our industry has ever had to acknowledge very much about parenting and caregiving and birthing because it's generally just been like, well, not my problem because they're not, uh, we don't have to take care of anyone who's dealing with it because everyone is freelance and everyone's on their own and SOL. I've worked in 10 plus casting offices in my time from casting intern to casting assistant to casting associate to casting director to casting office owner. I've, I've worked in a lot of places. And of all of those places I've worked, I can think of exactly one person out of all of them, all of my bosses, who was a parent, who showed me in any way what it was like to be a working parent, male or female or any gender. One person in my entire casting education was a parent. Um, that shifted. And there's now a glorious 
community of, of folks in casting industry, the casting industry specifically, but really our industry at large for our parents and caregivers. Uh, As an actor myself, I've been in auditions. This is back before COVID, but I had a friend of mine who was an actor, just had a baby, but she worked, he was auditioning. And so I would see him in audition. He's with the stroller and he's like, can you just watch my baby while I go, you know, and of course I'm going to do that. But I could only imagine how many times he had to ask that throughout the day or throughout the week as he was auditioning. So yeah, it can be a burden as you have this extra step that parents have to go through in order to audition and, and make a living. Sure. And I mean, to be honest, it's part of the reason why I advocate so hard for the self-tape. Because for a parent to show up at a callback at 2 p.m., do you know what that burden is for a parenting actor to have to find their childcare, get over, have childcare for after the virus, because they don't know how, old, how long they're going to be held? Like, that is a financial investment and a burden to their, to their day to simply, what, to come into the room for 10 minutes and make small talk? I don't want to do that to, to a parent, to a caregiver. Um, Especially right now, when we're, we know how hard this is to just parent in a pandemic outside of our industry. Uh, it is an unreasonable burden that we ask a parent to go and go to an audition. We've made it a point when we hear any notion of um, getting a babysitter or getting all the child care issues. We're like, bring the kid. The kid will sit on my lap while you audition. We've had plenty of auditions where their child was standing up there holding their hand while they sang us a song. We didn't care, right? We're suspending disbelief anyway. Like in any project or fan, we're clearly not where we say we are in the sides or like you're, you're tap dancing. Like but we know how to suspend this disbelief. Don't worry. I can imagine that there isn't ultimately going to be a, a child in the final project. It's again, during self-tape, if you want to have your kid in your hip because it's the only way to keep them quiet while you record, by all means, I don't care. Um, I've started very strongly to advocate for actors to have childcare grants when we're offering them developmental work. like. 29 hour readings. We've done 18,000 of them in the past six months. And, you know, that's 29 hours. An actor has to be in rehearsal and we're paying them a stipend of like, if we're lucky, a thousand dollars. Yeah, that's barely going to cover the the babysitter that they need to come. And so when I even catch wind of like, oh, oh they got a kid, I go and say, can we get the childcare grant? Can we add um, a stipend on top of the actor stipend? And it's not that we're paying the actor anymore, that they've got hard costs to participate in a process with us. And all we're doing is covering their costs. So they're not on a losing end financially for giving up themselves to a project. Um, the first time I ever learned to advocate for it was actually for a, a male caregiver. And he, he was the primary caregiver. And he said, hey, I need a child care grant for this to make it work. And it clicked like, oh, okay, I, I can do this. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak up on behalf of this actor. And I wonder, like, was were they receptive because it was the male caregiver and it was somewhat of an anomaly I would like to think it's not, but it was the first successful caregiving stipend I was able to get for an actor to participate with us. And I've never been shy about asking for it since for actors. Um, the one anecdotal story I'll tell of sort of like how far we still have to go when it comes to not discriminating against caregivers. I was pregnant with my second child. I was in negotiation for a project that was going to take us out of town for the audition process. And one of our final calls and in, in sort of coming on board and it was my due date and I was on the phone and I was like you know what I need to say something so I said hey just you know today's my due date um so if I go MIA for like uh, you know at 24 hours or so just know that's why um and the producer without any hesitation said well then you you don't have the bandwidth to, to cast the show and I had to stop and be like yes yes I do he's like how 
How could you possibly have a kid and also cast our show? I don't think I don't think you're going to be able to take this on. Like look, this was 2018, guys. Like not not 1992. Um, I had to be like, I assure you, I have the bandwidth. I wouldn't be on this call if I didn't think I had the bandwidth. Um, fast forward two days later, I had the baby, uh, and that evening we were on a call in our final negotiation, and about halfway through the call, the producer's like, "Wait, weren't you going to have a baby?" And I was like. Oh, I did this morning. I said, but this is that 24 hour golden window where the newborn sleeps all day. This is the best time to have this phone call. Um, and I don't know if it was a, you thought I couldn't to watch me. I'm going to attitude, but I showed up out of town with a three and a half week old baby. I was barely out of diapers myself having given birth and hired a nanny to walk the baby around. And I would slip out and nurse whenever the baby was hungry because at three and a half weeks old, like you can't be away from, from the kid. It just physically doesn't work. Um, and I think they thought I was going out for like a smoke break or something. And it was seamless. No one ever noticed that I was out of the room for, you know, an actor or two. Nobody noticed I had a baby hovering around the building. Uh, and then we came back for callback. Same thing. Had the, had the baby with me, with the nanny and opening night. They, you know, a nanny walked around the town while I went to the show. And then I, I rejoined with my son for the party and it, like it was fine. But it didn't, it took until that producer had a child of his own. The last show into the pandemic, I get a phone call out of the blue. And he's like, I just have to say something. I'm like, yeah, what? And he's like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, I, I had a kid. And I thought back to that day and that I questioned your ability to do your job simply because you were a parent. And I'm sorry. And I am grateful that he realized the the discrimination that he was showing. But it it, it took But also him ignorance. A, it was just ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, ignorance and discrimination. Like it's you, you, you judge because of because I'm a mom that I can't do my job. Like hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> but again, it took him having his own personal experience with parenting and watching his wife actually be a working parent, um, for him to at least understand that what he said all you know all those years ago was wrong. And I'm, I'm, you know so humble that he found it in himself to even call and apologize. He's a great friend. We're having coffee next week. He's a, he's a good guy, but there was a moment there. I was just like, I, I don't know that I, I want to, I don't know that I want to work with this person. Uh, if that's the ignorance you show in parenting. So it's just a story that always stuck with me that again, this was not era an era ago. This was very recently. My ability to do my job was questioned simply because I was pregnant. And you wonder why so many people keep their pregnancies or their caregiving responsibilities private. It's because they don't want to be uh, discounted before they're even given the chance. I guarantee if he knew I was pregnant, I don't know that I ever would have gotten that call for that project. Um, and that's a shame. You do bring up a good point that your office is very aware of this. And, you know, when you hear that babysitting, then you want to you help out. But obviously not every casting office is like that. And so is it up to us actors to just advocate for ourselves and well this is what i do and we either mesh we don't or how much do we need to compromise and mold ourselves to each casting office i'm very vocal about our needs as a casting office and about boundaries and priorities because i can i have the privilege of being loud and asking for what i need because i know it's what other people are going to need too and so if you have the opportunity to advocate it's not don't think of it as you being selfish and asking for something for yourself you are opening doors for others who may not have the opportunity to ask for that door to be opened. And always ask, again, the worst thing a, a company or a production can say is no, but at least you've asked and you've placed it into my, their mind that this is something that they are actually turning down. Um, so even if you don't get the childcare stipend or the accommodations you've asked for, 
you've set precedents and if they hear over and over again, this is something that not just actors, but just humans need to perform well and perform their jobs well. Um, so always advocate. Um, I think actors need to have agency here of saying like, you are not a commodity. You are not dispensable. Um, we need actors. We need good actors. And so asking for what you need shouldn't feel shameful. It should be empowering. Um, and it should not just be empowering for you. It's for every other actor out there who may need that same need or a similar need. Yeah, because there was recently, this this had to do with a particular rate and what was being asked of the audition. And I was like, I, I don't think for this usage that this rate is, is you know, commensurate with it. And my manager was questioning it. And then he brought it to the casting director and she took offense at it. And then it's like, well, I was going to bring him in for other things, but now I'm not going to bring him in for that. So she almost had this, uh, <laughs> this, this vendetta against me because I dared to question the rate that was being issued for this particular project. Uh, obviously, that is not the norm, but it, it struck me that someone would be so uh, wouldn't understand that questioning a rate is not off the wall. Right now, I I deal with the other end of it, especially during negotiations where agents and managers are asking for the stars and the moon, and producers get like offended and like this is their job, everyone. Like, good for this agent for asking for all of these things or for pushing back, like. They'd be a bad agent if we made an offer and they're like, accepted. Like, no, we wanted the agent to, like, that's the whole, that's why it's called a negotiation. Like, we, we want this and they're doing their job and it shouldn't reflect on the actor, quite frankly. I bet you the actor has no idea any of this is going on. So I try very hard to remind producers, don't take it personally. When they're pushing back, they're simply doing their job because this is, after all, the business. And the moment that we all forget, this is a business. This is a job. This is how we pay our mortgage. Uh, when we all take it all very personally, I think that's where some of these issues take place because I, I think actors feel like it, it is a gift to be allowed to perform. Like this is just about passion and fulfillment. Like, no, this is a job. Hey, treat it like a job. Be as professional as you would at your catering job. And for producers, like they don't need you to sit here and just be like, well, I'm here because I'd wish fulfillment. No, you're here to, to, to perform professionally for us and to be reliable like any other job. So I think it's, it's healthy for reminders now and then like this is a business, this is a job, this is professional, none of this is personal. Um, and I, I do my hardest to make sure whenever I, I notice someone like, you know, bristling at something, it's like, nope, agent, agent is agenting. This is what they do. This is how this is how they make their 10%. This is why they exist. It is not because you didn't do a good job portisorily with your budget. It's not because the actor is a jerk. This is simply like their responsibility. They're They're doing what they're being asked to do. Um, and so I think I, it goes back to the same way that all you're doing is asking questions. Your manager is asking questions. Someone who gets a vendetta against that, I, I question, is that the person you want to work with anyway? Uh, and that's a lot how we live um, when we meet with potential clients. Like our first question is, are they kind people? Everything else comes after. Quality of work, turnaround time, budget. Like I, if they're not kind people, we're out. Like it's, life is too short. We cannot do it because there are just too many touch points in a process where if they're not kind and respectful, I don't, I don't care what their budget is. It's not worth it. Well, when it comes to that client relationship, for story number three, you wanted to talk about how asking the right questions can fundamentally change that casting process. Sure. So I started to touch upon this in our first part of our conversation, talking about how casting has evolved. And we ask questions from the moment go, from the moment we meet with a client to, you know, fully onboarding that project. We're writing our breakdowns. We're talking about callbacks. I mean, from every step along the way, 
we've been empowered, especially in the past two years, but really for as long as I've been in business as a, as a solo casting director or with my partner, to ask these questions that are going to help move our industry forward and help move our society forward. Um, we base a lot of our casting process on focusing on representation and inclusion and diversity in casting to making sure that the stories that we are telling are being told by the right people to tell those stories, ourselves included, um, that our casts are reflecting the world around us and that we are doing absolutely nothing harmful during our casting process for anyone who's viewing this and either seeing themselves or not seeing themselves, that our representation on stage, on camera, in our audio dramas, that all of it is making this world a better place and more inclusive place and a more accepting place and a um, a place where we all want to be. And it's small thing. It's asking questions about why. Um, so a lot of what we do, especially once we're sort of deep into a project, is we're crafting our breakdown, right? Our character descriptions. And sometimes our playwright or our, our screenwriter or our director, they've already written descriptions and sometimes we're writing them from scratch. But we always try to figure out where is that actual boundary? Because we need actors to be able to see themselves in the role and agents to see their clients in the role and, and submit accordingly. And also we need to say, but this is that hard boundary where actually this isn't a fit for you. So don't submit or don't tape for this role. So it's up to us to figure out where are those boundaries and where are those boundaries when it comes to gender, race, size, age, ability. Um, we want to make sure that we haven't given a false boundary when in fact, why not? What if we push this further? What if it was a different Adrian? What if we expanded, you know, what, what we were originally thinking or what was originally written? And again, we are here in service of the writer's vision, the director's vision, the producer's vision, but we help them articulate what that vision is and whether some of these hard stops in demographics have anything to do with their vision. Um, a, a story I like to tell just because I had a happy ending. Uh, we were working on a premiere of a new play with um, a dual writer slash director. And there was a part that was sort of referred to casually as a cousin, um, but it was all elevated language anyway. And uh the two central characters, it really was a white privileged narrative. And so we accepted that as such. Um, and then there was a cousin who didn't really fit into that same narrative. And we pushed and we said, what if this was a person of color? And we got a lot of, but they're a cousin. I'm like, yeah. And well, that's just, that's just not how I saw it. I'm like, great. You wrote it from a, a, a white perspective, but is there anything in, in the narrative, anything in the storytelling that changes with a person of color? Why not? Like, why, why can't we open this up to a much larger pool of actors? Um, and we got a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback. And eventually there was relenting and, and we brought in a lot of different actors. And we actually ended up casting a Black man in the role. And it just elevated the cast and made it a much more interesting story being told on stage. And since it was a premiere, it was forever. This role was being originated by a Black man and not a white man, which sets up a lot of precedent for the future of making sure that there are more and more opportunities for actors of color inherently and just what are the preconceived notions of what this character is because this is the person who originated it. Uh, and on opening night, the director playwright came up to us and said, thank you. Thanks for pushing back. Thanks for keeping asking, but why, but why, but why? Because ultimately there wasn't, there wasn't, a, there was no reason why. There was no justification. And the writer director was like, this was, this was absolutely the right act of part, the right choice. So thank you. And this was well before we ever really felt empowered to be doing this. We just knew it was the right thing to do. We didn't have the language for what we were doing. Um, now we've certainly discovered that we are no longer alone in wanting to ask these hard questions, um, that we have the language to do so and the support to do so and the mandate to do so. 
And that's a huge shift from where casting was when I first started to now. And it's really helping us understand the impact casting can have both on our industry, but also on, on society. That we're sitting here and making sure we are always focusing on who are the right actors to tell these stories. Where are these hard stops in, in character descriptions in who we're bringing into the room? And where are sort of these false boundaries that somehow ended up there, but we've never really dug into why? Why does the lead have to be in quote unquote good shape? What, what does that do? What, is, what does that mean about our preconceived notions of beauty? Um, I worked on a project where there was a mayor character and the mayor character was male. And I was like, why? I don't know. It's just, it, it's just written that way. I'm like, what if just all the leadership characters were female? Like, oh, I mean, sure. And then lo and behold, first production of that project, mayor was female. Like, and there's just subtle, subtle ways that we are slowly shifting how we see the world uh, and how we represent the world that falls solely on the casting director's lap now. And we feel empowered to ask those questions and to, to dig into the why. And if there is no why, great. World's our oyster. We can, we can be as inclusive as we want to be in the casting process. And we, we want to be. <laughs> we really, really, really want of to course. be. Of course. Yeah. 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 The more voices, the more storytellers that there are, then the then the wider the, the the stories and the experiences that audiences can get from it. I, I totally agree with that. In in asking these questions, I'm curious, obviously white male writers will have a certain perspective as they have for, for many decades now. And as more and more people of color come into those director, producer, writer roles, are you asking the same questions or, or are there different questions that you have to pose when uh, when figuring out the casting for their shows? I think the conversations are all the same. Sometimes there's more resistance, sometimes there's less resistance, sometimes there's no resistance and we're all really excited to dig in. Um, so I, I, yes, I think the demographics of the people we're talking to are shifting. But so too are the conversations. They're always shifting. They're always evolving. Um, I sometimes wonder, you know, when we look around and we're the only women in the room, like what went wrong? Or we look around and there's no one of color in the room, like what went wrong? Um, we just are, we're very, very aware of who's making up a creative team um, and very aware when we look at creative teams out there and it, we notice someone, someone's missing from that picture or lots of people are missing from that picture. Uh, and you wonder what's going on that the other people on that team didn't notice something missing. Yeah, it's changing. It's not changing enough. Uh, I think it's awareness because I know I was having a conversation. This was would have been within the last year or two. And I got to thinking about casting specifically. And I was like, I cannot think in all the years that I've been here in New York, I was trying to think, has there ever been a black person behind the table? I, I've I've seen maybe Hispanic here, Asian, maybe, but it's mostly, mostly, I would say mostly been women and, and white women and men. And I, and so it kind of struck me. I hadn't really thought of it or it hadn't processed, but I was like, right, there aren't a lot of African-American voices behind the casting creative side of it, which yep. surprised it's me. A, it's a huge problem in the casting industry. Um, it's, it's being acknowledged and it's being addressed in some ways. It's part of the reason our office disbanded our internship program. Um, we felt that having an intern was elevating the already privileged um, casting professional, that just the ability to be an intern is in and of itself privileged and racist and uh, discriminatory. And those are the very people who are getting those entry-level jobs in casting because they have all the internship experience. And of course, they they have more qualifications to, to work in the casting office full-time. 
And so the more casting interns become casting assistants, well, now that casting assistant population is, is skewed, now they're becoming associates and casting directors and opening their own offices. And it was a privileged pipeline that we participated in. And we realized that and we said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, and I think a lot of casting offices have followed suit saying, wait a second, we can't keep elevating casting internships because all we're doing is supporting those privileged enough to intern, um, which is not going to help with a diverse and interesting and uh, representative casting community. So there are some changes happening, not fast enough and not not enough, but uh, we acknowledge that it is a problem and we are doing what we can in our little corner of the world to elevate BIPOC voices and BIPOC casting professionals um, in every way that we're able to. And so uh, in what ways can us actors, certainly when it comes to, to this area of diversity, but also just in general, in what ways can actors help casting directors? And, and in turn, I guess we're helping ourselves, but in what way can we best facilitate you? Well, if we're still sticking this line of like representation and inclusion and diversity in casting, know yourself and know what stories you should be telling. I put out a lot of breakdowns that I question who's reading them or who understands what it looks like when they submit themselves. Uh, I had a breakdown out recently for a non-binary or trans mask male. And there was a lot of cis white men submitting themselves. And I, I, and I, I know that they identify as a cis white man. And I have to say like, what, what are you doing submitting for this part? Like the, the lack of awareness that this is, this is not like I was explicit in what I'm looking for. Don't raise your hand and say, yeah, cool. I can do that. When no, actually you shouldn't be doing that. Um, if I put on a part for a certain ethnicity, let's say we're looking for um, a Chinese woman. Please, like know yourself, know if that's a role you should be playing. I can't decide that for you. I can't dig in and say, well, what actually, like where I, these are questions I'm not going to ask you or should I have to ask? Because I've told you what I'm looking for. And so please be honest in your submission that yes, that, that that is you and you should be telling that story. And so I have to ask the actors to be truthful with themselves about what they're submitting and auditioning for, because I can't be their judgment for them. If you, I have to take actors at face value. If I put out a breakdown and actor says, yes, cool, that's me. I'd like to submit. I'd like to audition. I don't want to question whether or not they fit the parameters. If I put out a breakdown and say, I need a skilled guitarist, I don't want an actor submitting who doesn't know how to play guitar. I'm going to take you at face value. I asked for a skilled guitarist. You told me you're a skilled guitarist. Great, come on in and play guitar. I don't want you to show up in the room and be like, well, I don't actually play guitar. Well, what are you doing here? Um, so in the same way, like if I tell you what I'm looking for, please be honest and say, yes, that is me or no, that is not me. If it's okay if it's not you, don't worry. I work on a lot of things. There'll be something that is you in the future. I think that's just a really important uh, responsibility an actor can take is knowing what rooms they belong into or what rooms are best for other folks to take up space in. Well, I wanted to get to a few questions from listeners. We'll start off with Andrew, who said, how do you feel about actors asking to audition for other roles in addition to the one you've asked them to do? Well, I have to ask why they didn't submit for the ones. Because again, when I'm casting something and we put out our breakdown, I have to trust the thing that you raised your hand for is a thing you know you're right for. I, you, an actor knows themselves better than me. So my like, just my first like, moments like well, the, well why wasn't that what you you submitted for they may be um, talking about because i know this has happened to me where your agent submitted you and then they come back and said yes we want you to audition for this role and then you're like 
oh, well, can I audition for that other role that's in the show as well? So I know that's happened for me where I've asked to do that. What What are your thoughts on that? There's too many nuances. Is did the agent submit you for three parts and casting director is only going to bring you in for one? Right. Actually, the agent shouldn't have submitted you for three parts. They should have submitted you for the one that you are most right for. Is it, there's actually been a change behind the scenes that you are just completely unaware of. There's just too many nuances to answer. Like you absolutely should. My instinct for an answer is trust the casting director um, because we have a lot more information than you do, but also it doesn't hurt to ask. And so you absolutely can ask the questions. But like, yeah, sure. Especially now in the world of self-tape, I've had actors tape for lots and lots of roles in one project. Okay, no sweat off my back. You already know the material. You're clearly, you know, uh, interested. Great. And sometimes they'll be like, no, actually, we're we're not actually auditioning that role. We have, we have an accepted offer here, so we don't need your tape on that one. You never know. So trust your casting director, but also it doesn't hurt to ask. Nikki asked, isn't it the director, producer, or client's decision as to who really gets cast at the end of the day? How much influence do CDs actually have? That answer changes project to project. In general, we are at the top of that filter. We're trying to figure out what even gets into the mix from the starting point until our final decision. We ultimately control the top of that funnel. But when it comes to the final decision, we're there to advocate, to answer questions, to give a sense of history of an actor's work in a way that some creative teams are just not familiar with because they're just not familiar with actors in the way that we are. But I'm never the ultimate decision maker. Even if I'm simply only presenting one choice to a team, which has happened, it's still with the need of approval of that one choice. So casting directors never have the final say, really, under any circumstances. But who's even in the mix is a casting director's purview. And this last question is from Sarah D. And she touches on the subject of followers and social media accounts, which has come into play in some auditions. She says, I've never been interested in fame or accumulating Twitter followers. I just love my job. I work hard, focus on every role with passion, and I'm happy to deal with the consequences it brings. Does that make you think I'm not hungry enough for the acting game? Meaning if she doesn't have the requisite number of followers to be cast. I don't give two roots about followers. <laughs> I'm glad um, you don't, but there are certainly, you know, of casting directors that do care about it for one reason. How many Twitter followers does Lori Metcalf have? Don't know, don't care. Still like her, right? Like, the hope is at some level you're not on social media. I don't think that followers equate to ability to play a role. I've had one instance where I had a producer ask me to include the follower account on our session schedule, like the printed schedule we handed out. I said, no, I won't do that. Um, and we didn't do it. It was fine, but I've only been asked once to do that. I think it is absolutely fine to not use social media as a professional tool. It is fun as a creative outlet and as a social outlet. It is not a professional outlet. But to give insight to like how my brain works, yeah, I'm on social media. I like it. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I tweet occasionally, but I'm not like following people. I'm not, I'm not scrolling through Twitter. Um, I am addicted to TikTok. And it's absolutely true that, you know, actors come to top of mind because I'm encountering them on these apps um, and on social media platforms. There are actors I've become big fans of because of social media, who now I'm advocating for, for our project. Um, there's an actress who has done two projects for us now. We became exposed to her because of social media and her social media presence. Um, she's a quite a big deal now, like Netflix special. Like she's substantial. I'm not going to any way take claim that we found her, but our awareness of her came from social media. Um, there's a young woman who is 
entering her sophomore year of college. I couldn't recall her last name now, but I follow her on TikTok. I think she is the funniest young woman I have ever seen. Wildly talented. Like she's on my ideal list for every film I work on right now. Never met her. Don't know anything about her. I know she's transferring schools because I follow her on TikTok. But like, do I want to hire her? Yes, I do. I think she's wonderful. I think she's going to be a star. And she came to my awareness through TikTok. She landed on my For You page and now I follow her and I think she's great. So benefit can come out of these apps, but it's not a requirement. If you find creative fulfillment on these apps, by all means, go do that. And if it brings awareness to you and your work, cool, like mission accomplished. But I can also be aware of actors not on social media. And I would say 99.9% of the actors I'm aware of are not from social media. But yeah, I we are learning about and digging deep into performers when I encounter them on social media. TikTok is such an interesting platform for that. And it's why I'm so into it. With Instagram, with Twitter by and large, with Facebook, I have to go actively follow somebody specific. So I already have to have an awareness of them and the desire to be up to date on what they're working on, to follow them on Instagram or to be friends with them, even on Facebook, which is like, you have to clear a lot of hurdles. <laughs> I'm friends with you on Facebook, oh, yeah. like a lot of hurdles. And Twitter, again, I, I don't scroll through Twitter, so I don't know. But like TikTok, that algorithm is going to tell me <laughs> which actor they want me to encounter. And it'll be folks I've never heard of. Um, I am, I'm following now, like, folks who just graduated from the BFA program who are really strong dancers and now I'm like following their career there's one girl who's been a swing in like every regional production I follow her on TikTok uh and she like ended up in a picture of her agent it with her agent on his Instagram I was like wait I follow her on TikTok he's like you're the fourth casting director to tell me that today because the TikTok algorithm it's real kind of why I'm into it but also it's again exposing me to folks I might not have ever encountered or might have been quite some time till I encountered them so I'm not saying like you're missing out you're not you're fine. If you're not on social media, who cares? But if you find joy in it, there's certainly professional aspects of it that exist amongst the social and the, you know, the, the fun part of it all. And it's not like actors, well, yes, some casting directors may care about it, but it's not like it should be our main goal to make sure we have 10,000, 15,000, whatever followers in order to make sure that we're cast in the next production of whatever. I don't know that followers equate to ticket sales for just about anything. I dig in when I meet like folks who work in social media or in the influencer world, like what is a meaningful follower account that translates to money? And we're talking like millions, right? millions can maybe sometimes translate to profits. 10,000 Twitter followers, that means absolutely nothing when it comes to selling tickets to a regional production of XYZ, nothing. Um, and so I think uh, there's, I think just a misconception of what, what followers can do to a production. And, and the value in it. And when you're in the tens of millions of, hey, cool, now we're going to talk. But I bet you the person who has that many followers are already aware of them. There's a reason why they have that many followers. And they're not being cast not, because of their followers, too. No, they, they, they have the followers because of the things they can be cast in and their abilities. That's not always true. Uh, there are certainly influencers where I'm like, I don't, I don't get it, but maybe somebody else gets it. But I don't think anyone that we're talking about, anyone that's listening to this podcast has to worry about follower counts because none of it, none of it moves the needle until a certain level. And once you're there, we're talking about a completely different ballgame. Anyway. Well, this has been a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate you sharing your insights. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Anyone else on social media that wants to chat? Apparently you can just right? <laughs> find me and, and send me a comment and off we go. We're on fun together. So here I am. I love it. I love it. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for joining Daryl Eisenberg and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with her bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the WinMe blog. You'll find a link to both in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.